I'm Jill Shaw, and I'm here with Ross Wilson to bring you an update on what happened last night during the Boston Public Schools School Committee meeting. If we were going to title today's podcast, Ross, I think we could call it He Said, She Said, with the he in this case being the administration and the she being the teachers, nurses, and families. There were two very, very different storylines on back to school with administrators saying we are fully ready to go and teachers and nurses and families calling in and testifying about things that are still missing from school buildings. For example, filters, PPE, open windows, and families worrying about the rates rising in Boston. What did you think, Ross? Good morning. Good morning, Jill. I think you're right on. This was um, the first part of the meeting was, was essentially the, the school department saying everything is great. Uh, actually, school started today, Jill, for about 3,500 students who um, the, the system decided was, were high priority students. Um, so the school system saying everything's great, we're ready to go. Um, and then we moved to public comment where we hear from, from so many people saying that things are actually not ready to go. Um, but we'll dig into that as we go through this, through this podcast. Jill, we should probably start by talking about the red zone. And you know, we, we heard yesterday from Mayor Walsh, in fact, that the city of Boston has moved into the red zone. Let, let's start with a quote from Mayor Walsh from yesterday's press conference. On the state metrics, as I said last week, we expect to be in the red zone very soon, and it's likely going to happen this evening. That means we've been seeing more than eight cases, eight new cases per day per 100,000 people population. So last night, it was confirmed that Boston had indeed gone into the red zone per the state's metrics and school did open this morning. Right, so it is advisable, what we hear from the state, it's a, the state advises that if you're in the red zone, you should be uh, in remote learning. Um, but let's hear why we're not. Uh, so the superintendent commented about the red zone and you know, she always has said that we're gonna follow the science when it comes to school safety. Let's play a quote from the superintendent about Boston now being in the red zone and why school is still opening. As you may have heard by now, there was an increase in the positive infection rate from 2.7 last week to 2.5 in the city of Boston. What that means is that we'll continue to watch and see if this trend continues or if it improves. Tonight, the state is also expecting to announce that based on the weekly COVID-19 public health report released today, the city of Boston has moved into the red zone on the state community level data map. Guidance from the state suggests school districts shift to remote learning after three weeks of being in the red zone. The city uses different, more comprehensive measures than the state does. And that's taking into account many pieces of data that the city reviews on the overall infection rate and considers testing rates as well. BPS and the city of Boston agreed when we ro rolled out our phase in that the threshold for moving BPS to an all remote learning um, all remote learning and an infection rate of 4% citywide. Anything above 4% would, would require closing, but we are not there yet. So the question is, are we following science? Uh, during public comment, a resident of Jamaica Plain, Ryan Zoon, who is a teacher at Boston College and whose wife teaches at BPS, had this to say. There are currently seven neighborhoods with a positivity rate above 4%, which should be alarming in general but it's particularly troublesome because these seven neighborhoods are where 63% of the children in Boston live. The average positivity 
rate across these seven neighborhoods for the past week is 5.4%, which is well above the 4% threshold the city is using to make decisions. Put differently, the city is putting the most vulnerable students at substantial risk by sending them in person tomorrow. So, the, you know, I think there's a lot of confusion um, because we, you know, have heard all along that we're going to follow the science and people have been asking questions about exactly what science we're going to follow and it sounds like things are still very fuzzy. But in any case, school has opened um, and some kids are now in school, school buildings today. So let's move on. Right, Jill. And, and so I, I just want to note one thing, that today is the first day for about 3,500 kids in Boston Public Schools. And there's going to be at least another 11 first days of school as, as we transition into hybrid learning. What do, you, what do you mean there'll be 11 first days of school? Well, we, we have in-person priority students, 3,500 started today, and they'll go to school mm -hmm. today and tomorrow. We have a new group of in-person priority students starting on Monday. That's another 3,500 starting Monday, and they'll go Monday and Tuesday. Eventually, those two groups may go, some of those kids may go four days a week. Um, and then starting in the middle of October, we're going to start with our kindergarten students and our first graders in cohorts A, go back to school, and then cohort B, go back to school. So it's a Monday start for um, half of our kindergartners and early childhood students. Right. And then there'll be another Thursday, first day of school for those students. And then we're going all the way up through high school, Jill. Which is in November. Which is in November, middle to end of November. So in Boston Public Schools, um, mm. we've traditionally had a hard enough time opening up school once, um, getting our buses to run on time, food to be delivered, right? Facilities to be ready. Um, right. Not only are we doing this once in BPS, we are doing this uh, almost a dozen times over first days of school. So it'll be really interesting to see how this plays out and how our bus drivers respond to um, every different route that they're driving on different days. This is gonna be quite the puzzle. That is gonna be quite the puzzle. You can understand why during public comment there was um you can hear so much stress in people's commentary. Right. So, Jill, also, what's you know, in a timely uh, conversation here, we heard a few meetings ago about exam schools. Right. And in fact, the superintendent and the school committee commissioned an exam school task force to, to take a look at should there be an exam this year for admissions into the Boston exam schools. Um, right. That report was supposed to come back at last night's meeting. Let's play a quote from Dr. Rivera, who asked this very question. What's going on with the exam school admission task force? I actually, I just wanted to ask if you could give a quick update about the task force that was formed to uh, give recommendations about the admissions to the exam schools and where, you know, sort of where, where are things there? What should we be expecting? Yeah, and this is a good point because BPS, sixth graders, and I guess, right, the charter schools, the parochial schools, the private schools, they all have sixth graders and their families have been, who are going to apply to go to the exam schools. But nobody knows exactly where they're going to go to take this exam, I guess, and, and whether or not they're even going to take it. Man, talk about pins and needles. So Jill, the, the exam school test, uh, as we know, is now the MAP assessment. It's moved on from the IC assessment to the MAP right. assessment. Um, and it is typically given the first week of November to students across Boston. We're in October, as you know, happy October 1st. And next week's meeting uh, is, is gonna be on October 8th. There'll be, we, we think, a recommendation about the exam school process and test. 
And then there'll have to be a vote from the school committee members on that, right? And that, that won't happen until the next school committee meeting, which will be at the latter half of October. So I am, I'm really unclear about how, if there will be a test, how will people be notified? Where will the test be given? How do you sign up for that test? And all knowing that the timing is typically in November, so that the process of sort of bringing together the student test scores and the grades and so on can be ready for the assignment period just after the new year. So anyhow, a lot of questions on this. And I'm kind of concerned that there's a lack of decision-making here in a timely basis and that the committee is allowing for the decision to be made potentially way too close to, to where the timing of the test would usually be. I mean, this is a very big deal, right? Admissions to exam schools in the city is a, an extremely big deal. Right. So we'll, we'll hear more about this at the, at the next meeting, which is, again, next week, next Thursday night. Um, so this will, be, this will certainly be a hot topic. Also, in old news, Jill, uh, what came up again was a question by the amazing new student member of the school committee, Kamani James, who um, you know, is just amazing. And so he came up again with a question say, to Mr. DePina saying, Hey, remember those M7 MBTA passes for students, the, the, right. the passes that allow our students to get around the city for both education and for school? And work. And work, right. And so the yeah. last meeting, Mr. James said, can you mail those home so students could begin to use them, use the passes? And Mr. DePina said to Mr. James, don't worry, we'll have an offline conversation. Apparently that conversation never happened. So Mr. Right. James asked again, Mr. DePina, can we get those cards sent home? Uh, let's play the response uh, from Mr. DePina. Um, with regards to transportation, into Kamani's question, we did explore the possibility of, of mailing um, the MBTA passes to students. But what it uh, boiled down to was that we were too concerned um, with the high risk of not being able to have every student get their MBTA, MBTA passes via mail. We have about a 50% response or return rate um, for mailers that we send out. So we didn't want to risk sending the MBTA passes out in the mail and creating another problem by which students didn't receive them and following up with them. So um, that's what it boiled down to. So we, uh, we prefer to stick with the uh, plan on uh, having students pick them up as they return to school. So, so Jill, we, <laughs> it seems like we have a bigger issue here. If we have half of our students, we, their mailing ad- addresses are incorrect. Maybe we should deal with that problem uh, first, right? So um, that, that's, that's, that is really, um, I would like to know more about that. If I was a school yeah, committee member, yeah. I would ask more about that. How, how do well, we- Plus education experts have said the number one thing school districts should be doing, this is back in May, is we should be getting appropriate and precise contact information for every student in our schools to make sure that we're in touch with them, right? Because we serve, school systems serve not only the students' basic needs, but their education needs. And if we can't get in contact with half of the students, what, from eighth grade on in the school system who get two passes, it's a huge problem. It is a huge problem. And so not only is it is a huge problem that we don't know 50% of our, uh, the addresses of our students, but it also for our students in high school who are not starting school till November, they, they may not get their MBTA pass until November. Until um, November, which, right. Right, which, which for many of our students, they're relying upon those passes to go to work, as you said, and different opportunities. So uh, that's a problem. I hope there's better solutions than what we heard last night. So Jill, also another, another big part of the conversation last night was about um, learning pods. So we, we've been hearing about learning pods across the city for a little while now, where parent groups were getting together to try to figure out how can they share responsibility for the schooling of their children. But there's a whole lot of kids in Boston Public Schools 
that don't have that that parental um, the parental ability to watch over their kids during the day, right? So they're we have thousands home, of right? kids. They're at work. They're at work, right? Yeah. So we have thousands of kids who are home during the day. We heard this months ago, months ago from BPS when BPS said we have to figure out how to get supervision for kids when when school is remote. And we're still, last night, we heard from some community partners like the YMCA who have stepped up and said, we're going to provide learning pods. Um, they actually have eight sites going on. They've been operating since the first day of school from eight to five every day. They have a few hundred students going on. But, but Jill, there's no leadership from Boston Public Schools on this. There's no funding from BPS for learning pods. There's no coordination that we've heard of. And, and essentially, this is a group of partners who are trying to solve for this. By the way, school has already started. We have thousands of kids. Every student is at home right now, except for the 3,500 just started today. But right. literally, we, know we are going to be in this situation for the rest of the year. And we don't right. have a solution. So what has been happening for months? Where has BPS in the city been for months? And when they said they would start planning for learning pods, and yet here we are in October, and there is no plan. So I commend, I commend, I commend the YMCA. I commend other partners who are trying to do this on their own. All, all of this is being paid for philanthropically. No money from the city has gone into learning pods. No money from BPS has gone into learning pods. Um, it is incredibly frustrating to know that we have students at home and we have willing partners and we have yet to make those matches. So now going back into the school buildings, we heard last night that the results of the checklist that BPS sent out to all schools to do their walkthroughs are still incomplete. And even as some of our most high-need students start school today. Let's play a quote from Mr. Sam DePina, who is the Chief Operating Officer for the Boston Public School System. But for the most part, the, the results um, weren't good at the time, but since we've verified um, based on the new delivery schedule, they've all improved. So Jill, you know, Mr. DePina is saying, well, you know, we, we created these checklists for every school so that we can do a walkthrough. Um, I actually participated on one of these walkthroughs it was a comprehensive checklist. And for our school, it was incomplete. And it turns out for every school, the checklist was incomplete because the system hadn't delivered some of the things that needed to be delivered. So we heard that nurses safety gear or PPE for nurses was, was not delivered on time. Some of the, these dusters or, or foggers, if you will, were just delivered yesterday, right? Students started school today. We heard from Mr. DePina that most of the things have been delivered to schools that they need, but they also haven't been installed yet. So signage has been delivered, but may not have been installed. There has been plexiglass delivered, but hasn't been installed. Mm. Um, and essentially, Mr. DePina said, this is now September 30th, today is the first day of school, October 1st, that protocols have yet to, been fi to be finalized. So we've been hearing for months now that everything is fine, everything will be delivered, everything is okay for our buildings. And now we're on October 1st, the checklist failed, and we're hearing that the twice. things are twice and things are still being delivered uh, essentially on the first day of school. Um, right. Man, come on, like, can we get this together and, and just be clear about what we have done and not have done so that right. people can trust the system and stop saying that everything is in place when it's not in place? All right, I know transparency is real key here. So Mr. Michael O'Neill on the school committee uh, asked a question about windows and windows have come up in several meetings now. Let's play Michael's quote. Mr. Pino, I do have to question you on one thing you said in your earlier report. You made kind of a blanket statement that I need some clarification on. You said windows have been fixed. So are you referring to the 7,000 windows that 
were inspected and broken and, and needed to be able to get at least one in every classroom? Or are you referring to, I believe you were told us we have about 25 to 30,000 windows in our schools. So then the superintendent responds to Mr. O'Neill's question. There's no school with no windows that don't work. Every learning space, every space for professional space, there is one window that's working. But that's not, it, it, what, what the superintendent says does not line up with what um, several teachers call in and, and nurses call in to talk about. This teacher in particular from the Jackson Mann School mentions that she is starting school tomorrow or today in a window, windowless classroom. I want to be clear that I want to teach my students and I want to teach them in person. My students are in the highest need group. I know that this is what they need. Um, I'm not lazy. I've been working harder than I ever have in my life. Um, you just heard me yelling at my husband because I'm so stressed out. I was trying to kick him out of the room. Um, but I'm scared. I'm really anxious and I don't feel safe going in tomorrow. And I don't feel that I'll be able to keep my students safe. In my tiny windowless room, I'm going to have five to seven adults on a single day for the one or two students who are coming in person. We don't have the PPE that we need. We each have 10 gowns, one shield, and two surgical masks, which isn't enough to help five students with toilet training for more than one day. My students cannot social distance. We have no guidance on how to work hands-on with them. We've been asking for this information for weeks and we have nothing. Staff have been waiting and waiting and have trusted that the district would have answers by now and you don't. So Ross, help us understand this. So at least two teachers and I think one nurse testified last night saying they're coming to work tomorrow, which is now today in windowless rooms. What's the disconnect here? What are teachers talking about when the superintendent and Mr. Dupina are both saying clearly there every every room has one window that opens. It's simply not true, Jill. Uh, I used to work at the Jackson Man School. The Jackson Man School was built as an open classroom concept where there's like one big sort of room, if you will, that has dividers separate in them. They don't have windows. I taught at the Jackson Man. I had a windowless classroom. Um, in fact, there are multiple windowless classrooms at the Jackson Man School. There, I, I was a principal at a school in BPS. Four of my classrooms in, 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 and, and the nurses room were all windowless at that school. So I'm not, so there are absolutely learning spaces, nurses rooms, professional rooms in the schools across Boston that do not have windows. So for the superintendent and Mr. DePina to say there are, there are no learning spaces or, or professional spaces in our buildings without a window is absolutely untrue. And I guess the other thing that was concerning is that it sounds like the CDC's guidance is that if you don't have proper ventilation, it sounds like maybe lots of spaces don't have proper ventilation because there's a question about whether or not our testing of the air was done correctly you have to have HEPA filters. And, and it sounds like most of our schools are so old, which they are, um, that we don't have any kind of filtration systems built in to the schools. And so there's a big question here. We also sent out fans that are meant for homes, not commercial. They don't seem like they're the right size. 
they don't seem like they're enough of them because the question about which way they need to be pointed so that they're not blowing the virus around in the room versus pulling it out of the air. And so I'm questioned here about safety when we're talking about an airborne disease. Yeah, so Jill, I, I expect that we'll be seeing a lot of pictures on social media from teachers posting pictures of their fans um, and, and telling us about their ventilation. So it'll be an interesting few weeks once uh, as students begin to go back to, to, to see if this ventilation is actually working. Um, and, and of course, as we get into the colder months, um, what, what will be happening with our open windows and, and ventilation at that time? A lot of, a lot of, um, a lot of questions unanswered here. Um, Jill, let's get into food a little bit. So then the conversation with school committee moved on to a discussion about food where Michael O'Neill and Vice Chair Oliver Davila had gone out to check out some of the new food super sites and to, I think, taste and uh, experience the food sites. Mr. O'Neill set up a discussion by asking Laura Benavides, who is the director of food nutrition services, this question. Ms. Benavides, are you happy with the taste of the offerings? Well, it's, um, it's, it's okay. It's okay. So it, what do you think here? Well, so Jill, so there's this, there's this it's a very pointed question, which, which um, actually made me feel like this is what the school committee's role is, right? Is to ask very right. qu questions about, so what's going on with the quality of the food? What do you think about it? Um, clearly, Ms. Benavides didn't really have a, an immediate answer about the, how, how it, the food tasted. Um, she didn't seem to but, love it. <laughs> she didn't seem to love it. Um, uh, let, but, but then what, what was interesting is what followed was very quickly, um, it, Mr. O'Neill was, was uh, sort of cut off by uh, Chairman Lacanta um, right. saying, wait a minute, you know, bef my, my view of this was before you start asking hard questions, why don't we stop this conversation? So let, let's just play this uh, interaction between Chairman Lacanto and Mr. O'Neill. Ms. Benvius, if I can interrupt for a second. Uh, Mr. O'Neill, I appreciate um, your line of questioning here, but we are talking about uh, reopening and we, we can schedule a food presentation for- No, Mr. LaCarta, with all due respect, I'm talking about the food that we are offering to our students today, this week. This Understood. This is part of reopening. I am gonna be getting to what the food service plans are for reopening. Understood, Mr. O'Neill. 100% about reopening. So clearly, we've been talking about the quality of food on this podcast um, since the pandemic started in the in the spring. So mm. I'm not sure what we're waiting, you know, what Chairman Lacanto is saying we should wait for um, in order to have a conversation, um, especially because the Boston Public Schools team um, at every meeting touts the number of meals that they serve. So if right. they continue to talk about the number of meals that they serve, shouldn't we have a substantive conversation about the quality of food? that they're serving. And so Mr. O'Neill continued his line of questions. Let's continue to hear questioning from Mr. O'Neill. I do kind of question how we consider mozzarella breadsticks with marinara sauce to be a, a lunch that we serve the students. I recognize what's going on with COVID. I recognize the challenges um, for, our, for our food service workers who I think are doing yeoman's work. Um, I appreciate that we are trying to help people get food both at home and in schools. And yet I think we have slid so far backwards from where we were um, that, you know, I, I would question how many people are gonna be eating and be happy with the size and the taste and the health of what we are currently offering. So then, then Jill, the superintendent um, sort of jumps in here and says, um, you know, wants to make sure that, that, that we're valuing 
the, the, the team um, in food nutrition services and BPS. So let's play the superintendent's quote. So I just want to thank Ms. Benavides. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for serving um, over 2 million meals. So clearly the superintendent's saying, thank you so much for providing the over 2 million meals to our kids. And just before this, we heard that those meals consist of cheese sticks and breadsticks. Um, but the superintendent's saying thank you for those cheese sticks and breadsticks shipped in from New Jersey. Then it turns over to Vice Chair Oliver Davila, who continues to add about the quality of food. Let's play the Vice Chair's quote. I wonder if, if we could actually look at some local um, businesses um, and local businesses that are owned by people of color. Can we invest, uh, even if it was a portion of the contract now, um, that is local. Um, the company that we're working with is not local to Massachusetts. It's not a company that is owned by um, people of color. And uh, I, I know Chelsea, the Chelsea uh, School District doesn't, you know, they don't have a lot of funding, but I've seen the food that they have and it's very uh, culturally relevant. So Jill, just to finish off this conversation, from my point of view, it's questions and comments that of the, like these that remind us of the role of the school committee should be playing. They should be digging deeper, ensuring our students are getting what they need rather than just accepting a surface level report that says everything is okay and there's nothing to see here. So I really appreciated this back and forth. Um, this, this gave, uh, I, I think me, it gave me more hope in the school committee's role um, going forward. And, and, and I was excited to hear. Now, it'll be interesting to see if, if the school system can change the course of direction and actually provide um, better oranges and better quality meals to our students. Yeah, it will be interesting. It, you know, the other thing that wasn't clear and the question was asked in that whole discussion about whether or not uh, a bid was put out for these meals, because the winner of the last bid, um, which is preferred food or preferred meals, uh, ended up being fired during this whole process. And so there, there's a question, too, about whether or not, you know, another bid was put out in um, procuring food for this beginning of the school year. And especially, right, like there's multiple things happening. We're now feeding our students in the school as well as providing food for grab and go and, and for take home. And so this is very complicated. And, and so I just wonder if we have the right solution for every piece of the problem right now. Uh, so then we move into public comment. It was interesting, Ross, because one of the first folks to testify was Jessica Tang, who's the head of the Boston Teachers Union. And she was furious in the last meeting. And she won, there was, she was not furious at all in regards to the restart of school. It was such a big shift. And she spent her entire testimony talking about the failures of the Trump administration. How, how did things shift so dramatically? There was no agreement with the teachers union at the last meeting. Is there an agreement now? They didn't, it didn't come up. Right. This was like shocking. Like we two weeks ago, the entire meeting was about schedules and and the Boston Teachers Union dissatisfaction with the agreement with BPS and um, how there was, you know, a lot of um, uncertainty about that agreement that was voted on. And in fact, I, we heard from Jessica Tang, president of the BTU, saying, committee, you, you should I don't even care if you vote yes on this agreement because it's not even a good agreement. Right. right. So we heard all of this. And then this meeting, we heard crickets, nothing about this topic. It turns out, Jill, that there was a side agreement reached, um, I think it was uh, two nights ago, between the Boston Teachers Union and the school department that resolved this issue 
by giving, essentially giving teachers veto power over schedules. So the way that they, the agreement basically said, um, if you don't like the schedule that the principal is putting forward, you can veto it and they'll have to come up with a new schedule. And so basically wow. it seems like BPS has sort of kicked the can to principals, uh, put them in a very difficult position to try to figure out their schedules now, but it, uh, it did appease, it, it seems like it appeased the leadership of the Boston Teachers Union. So they moved on from being uh, concerned and frustrated with the city of Boston and BPS to being concerned uh, and frustrated with our federal government. Wow, um, talk about putting the leaders of each school in a really difficult position. That That's a... Huh, that's, a, that's an interesting decision. So the other things that happened, uh, and for the most part during uh, public testimony, kind of fell into two topics. One was whether or not we are safely ready to go back to school, uh, where many, many teachers, parents, nurses testified that most of their schools do not meet the self-prescribed safety standards given to them by the district, which includes a lack of PPE, ventilation solutions, HEPA filters, windows that open, protocols, et cetera. It's really well summed up by Jody Sugarman Frozen, um, who's a resident of Boston and is also representing the Massachusetts Coalition for Occupational Safety and Health, who was brought in uh, by the teachers union to do an assessment of this um, startup process uh, by the district. Here's what Ms. Sugarman Brosman had to say. Last week, Maskosh worked with the Boston Teachers Union to release a report on whether or not our schools are safe enough to welcome students back tomorrow. The report was completed by our expert health technical committee after participating in school walkthroughs and completing a technical review of data collected by BTU building representatives on their walkthrough. As of September 18th, many items on the BTU and BPS's jointly agreed upon checklist were lacking in schools or not in place at the time of the walkthroughs, such as window fans and 95 respirators, other medical grade PPE for nurses, some signage and room configurations for various student cohorts, soap in every bathroom, sanitizer in every classroom, and many other items. We concluded that many classrooms and buildings were not yet prepared to be safely used by students and staff. We made recommendations for improved COVID protections and for follow-up walkthroughs. Unfortunately, a week later, we are still gravely concerned about the safety of school buildings, even as they are set to open tomorrow. Just yesterday, our occupational health and safety experts accompanied BTU staff on, on a follow-up walkthrough at the McKinley Elementary and Middle Schools. There were window and fan issues in, in both schools. These are both schools without mechanical ventilation, so this is very concerning. As you know, COVID can be spread through small aerosol droplets, so indoor air is potentially hazardous. The provision of outside air and air changes per hour must be maximized, and it's not happening. Nikki Rivera explained eloquently why this is inadequate earlier. These classrooms, all special education classrooms, need portable air cleaners with HEPA filters to be safe. Neither school had received N95s for the nurses or thermometers for that matter, and this seems systemic across the system. So a lot of concerns here, Jill, I mean, from a professional organization around the, 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 the safety of our buildings. Yeah, it, yeah. Oh, it, it made me so um, worried to hear the testimony, especially when you have, you know, groups like this coming in and talking about how we're not quite ready, even though everyone, it sounds like, is, is really dying to go back to school if they, if they could do it right. Um, the, the second group of comments was in response to Dr. Coleman's suggestion that which happened at the last school committee meeting, that the committee might want to look at shortening the period of public comment. Here's what Dr. Coleman said at the last school committee. 
more than 90 minutes of public comment every night uh, makes it very difficult to focus on the other work. And I'm wondering if we could uh, consider a, a temporary suspension of the rules, given this, this situation to limit the amount of time we spend on a public comment. And effectively, public comment said, please do not truncate the public testimony process. That, that is not the way to resolve what have turned into exceptionally long meetings for school committee. Um, it's well summarized by Ruby Reyes, who has this to say. Now there's an anticipation of limiting public testimony. Currently, the Boston School Committee remains the only appointed school committee in the state. The only elected member is a student who does not vote. What little democracy and the voices of families is now going to be limited as well. This does not encourage building trust, a clear violation of the strategic plan. Perhaps the school committee can garner additional time by limiting the number of thank yous for one another. So after public comment, there was one vote in front of school committee. And this vote was about whether or not to allow students to play golf and cross country if the city is not in the red zone. So now we're in the red zone. So it's, it's right now, no one has permission to do anything. Um, but Ross, I, I don't quite understand this. The school committee did not have to vote on whether or not to open school, but school committee does have to vote on whether or not kids can play golf and cross country. Oh, uh, Jill, it's very confusing to me. Um, okay. you know, almost every other school committee across our state voted on reopening of school plans. You know, would it be hybrid, in person, remote, timelines? Every Pretty much every school committee voted on that on those on those plans, except for Boston Public Schools. Um, yeah. But now, you know, Boston Public Schools is um, voting on cross country and golf. I think there's like a dozen students who yeah. are engaged in golf and cross country. Um, so the vote uh, passed uh, unanimously, um, and our students will now be able to play golf and cross country if we move out of the red zone. So, Jill, after the vote. Um, we moved to a report from the division, a new division of equity, strategy, and opportunity gaps. Dr. Charles Granson uh, introduced his team and, and sort of uh, talked about how he was bringing together a number of different divisions that have been operating in BPS. This is not the first reorg of, of really important work around how we have an anti-racist organization in BPS. But Dr. Granson, you know, he put forward a solid plan about a, a theory of action related to the superintendent strategic plan. And, you know, I would just say here that it's important that the division of equity strategy and opportunity gaps is weaved into every decision that's being made in the school system. And that until this becomes part of the fabric of the school district, we won't see a more anti-racist school district going forward. And so I hope that Dr. Granson and his team are involved in the key decision-making of the school district, because, you know, what we've seen in the past is, is that efforts like this, this sit on the side of key mm. decisions rather than being at the core of key decisions. So once this division gets up and going, and, and it'll be interesting to hear about their work, uh, but certainly a, a really important portfolio uh, of work ahead of them. Um, right. Then Jill, we finally got, you know, at the end of the meeting, the last report was about the length of school committee meetings. And uh, as you referred to earlier, uh, Dr. Coleman's question at the last school committee meeting about can we limit public comments so that we can shorten these meetings. And so the result of this conversation, there wasn't really anything to this conversation other than the school committee should put in stronger structures and systems for themselves so that they can make the meeting go faster. 
So essentially what I, what I see this as, Jill, is the, 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 the school committee essentially created a longer public comment at this meeting and a longer meeting uh, at this meeting overall as a result of putting this on the agenda. I'm not really sure why it needed to be on the agenda or why we needed to raise uh, a, a number of concerns from people that feel like they had to come out and publicly say we shouldn't uh, do away with public comment or limit public comment. And the result of this is nothing. There is no there, there is no change in public comments or school committee meetings other than we just had a longer meeting last night. Yeah, the circular, I guess, uh, conversation and decision on this probably added a good hour to the school committee meeting last night. Probably the opposite intention that they desired they desired to have. Yeah. Well, that's what happened last night at school committee. The next school committee meeting will be on Thursday, October 8th. So it's moved by one day. It's typically on Wednesday. And our podcast summarizing the meeting will be released on Friday afternoon. Thank you for listening to last night at school committee. We hope that you enjoyed today's podcast. And if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your fellow friends, parents, and residents of Boston. We all have a stake in the future success of Boston students. Have a great day.